from Cambridge 105 Radio, this is The Business of Cambridge with Sue Keogh. Sponsored by our friends at Third Light, transforming how marketers collaborate and manage their digital media. Hello and welcome to The Business of Cambridge. If you're starting a new business, you'll be able to pick up essential tips later on from our resident expert from the Chambers of Commerce. And you'll also learn from my two guests today, who are sharp enough to spot a problem, develop a tool to solve it and build extremely successful businesses as a result. Michael Wells, MD of Digital Content Asset Management Software Third Light, who, as you've just heard, kindly sponsored the series, will talk us through Chorus, the tool they've developed for creative folk. And Richard Hobson will tell us about the tool he's developed for cows, <laughs> animal tracking platform Herdsey, which helps farmers increase their profits. And I must tell you that due to lockdown, we've recorded this whole series remotely with guests in all sorts of interesting locations. But Richard, you win the prize for being furthest away as you're currently in Ireland. There's worse places to be. Whereabouts are you? I'm stuck in Ireland here at the moment. I'm based in Kildare, which is uh, just to the next county outside of Dublin, made famous for, for two things. Obviously, it's beautiful women, but very fast horses as well. Lots of animals <laughs> here at the moment. Maybe you're not planning to come back. <laughs> Michael, let's get down to business then. Who is a typical customer for you at Third Light and what are the problems they're dealing with? Well, we're dealing with typically teams that work in marketing content. I think the problem we're trying to solve is the ability to collaborate efficiently. If you've got a lot of content and it could be things like brand materials, new campaigns, things that you need to share with lots of people in lots of different ways. If you're in a team, it gets difficult just to store them all in a shared file system. And uh, we're, we're there to solve that problem of how to collaborate efficiently, how to put workflow and other features around it to make it easy and fun to do. Typical customers for us are the, the marketing departments in quite big organisations. Some of our customers are companies like ITV, Sony, the Royal Albert Hall, and some big NGOs like the United Nations and NATO. Uh, there's really loads and loads of different sectors represented in our customer base. So it's not just people with the odd photo downloaded from their smartphone. It's massive picture archives, isn't it? It is. Um, typically tens of thousands of files. It can be smaller. It can be very much larger as well. But the, the, the key thing is that there are more than a few people who have an interest in accessing them regularly. And that coordination problem needs to be solved. Okay, and Richard, can you tell us a bit more about your customer base and the distinct challenges they're facing, which led you to develop Herdsey? Well, we deal a lot with cattle farmers and cattle ranchers all around the world, from the UK to South Africa, and now even in Texas in the US. What we try to do is take the guesswork out of livestock farming. So we developed a collar that's worn around the neck of the animal. It's a bit like a Fitbit for farming. Farmers can monitor their animals basically 24-7, and it's sometimes these fine margins that can make the difference between a loss and a profit in farming itself. And what brought you to Cambridge as a place to develop this product? I think you've got family links here as well. I actually do, strangely enough. I was brought here because I had seen a grant for agri-tech companies that were given out by the Cambridge Combined Authority. But actually, my relative is actually Thomas Hobson, who was in the 1600s, was a liverer in Cambridge, whose yard is actually now where King Street Run is. He rented horses for transportation around Cambridge. So it's a bit like the Uber, but with horses. He insisted on resting his horses in strict rotation. So you got the horse by the door or not at all. Hence the term Hobson's choice. He also bought Chesterton Hall. He amassed a lot of wealth from this and he bought Chesterton Hall. And my offices, coincidentally now, are in Chesterton Road. So obviously Cambridge and animal welfare are clearly in my blood. 
I've got a really lovely mental image of you striding into these Cambridge techie and academic kind of events in your yellow suit and your big Stetson. <laughs> really feels like you're trying to shake things up. Well, we try to. We have to. We have to be able to stand out. There's so many wonderful agri-tech companies, uh, you know, in Cambridge, and it's hard to stand out. So you've really got to kind of stand out a bit more. Uh, plus, when I go to farming shows, no one is ever intimidated by me, and they always come up and ask, "What's the deal with all the gear?" Unfortunately, though, I probably won't be able to use my my same marketing standpoint in Texas, um, because obviously now I'm the Cambridge cowboy, and now I'm going actually to meet real Texan cowboys who will probably have guns. So I'm, I'm trying to stay alive and stay well from that perspective. <laughs> Sounds like a sensible approach. Okay, so thinking about tools, so once you've got the original idea nailed, how do you refine it from there and test it to see if it works? With Third Light and, and Chorus, which is the, the name of the tool itself, where did you start? So you must have started fairly small and scaled up. Yes, the original idea for Third Light's products was something that I needed. Um, I was a very early adopter of digital photography. And so turning the clock back to about 2002 here, I was accumulating really large numbers of files, which I was going to have to store somewhere. And the problem is that when you want to get files to, say, a customer, and you've got an internet connection, and you've got, say, 100 files, and they're all three or four megabytes... Around, around 2002, that was a lot of content, and it wouldn't be possible to email it. It's also not possible, really, to expect people to install tricky tools like FTP. So you end up wanting to put it on the web, and so the problem really begins to sort of get solved at that point, because you're then adding access controls around it. You know, are you really the person that should have these files? How are they organised? Are they presented in albums or folders or collections? All the analogies of uh, old photography ways, you know, is this a light box, for example, when you want to share a particular set of files to discuss with someone. So I built the earliest versions of Third Light's tools back then just to solve my problems. But uh, everyone who came in contact with the software expressed an interest in it, and it was clear that really it needed to be developed. It was of its time. Digital photography, the availability of ubiquitous broadbands, all of the pointers were saying, this is a good idea, this is a product that needs to be developed, and people are asking for it. And with Herdsey, Richard, did you start fairly small on just a couple of cows? You just described it um, as a Fitbit for cows. So is that where you started and then you scaled it up from there? What, what were your early prototypes like? Oh, um, well, we had started Herdsey to really solve a problem that existed on my father's farm. Uh, my father had always said that farming was probably the most expensive hobby he ever had. And he was looking for something to help him monitor his animals when he went off to another job, uh, as he had to have a second job. But we couldn't find it anywhere on the internet. So we looked and we looked and we looked, uh, and then we decided that we, we had no choice but to build it. And then as we built it and as we tested it, we realised that more than one person had this problem. And this, what we're actually solving was not only an international, but potentially a global problem. Um, because we were doing something so new, I remember going to a couple of experts and they're saying it's impossible to build that. It's, it's just not, you're not able to build it. The technology isn't there. And every time and time again, we found a way around that. Uh, and we found a, an obstacle we could get over until we actually had, one day we had realized, we turned around and realized we had built it and proved the naysayers wrong. 
You're listening to The Business of Cambridge and today we're talking tools and problem solving with Richard Hobson from Herdsey and Michael Wells from Third Light. What about sales? So you know that the tool is amazing, but how do you convince other people? With farming, it's not a world I'm heavily immersed in myself, but I wonder if some people are really keen to try new technology and others might be a bit more, well, I'm fine, thanks. You know, I'm fine as I am. I think there's a common misconception out there in the world that farmers are kind of these Luddites uh, and they're anti-technology, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. They're just extremely discerning about the technology that they use on their farm because they really need to depend on it. In cert- it's their livelihood and in certain cases with the animals it can be the difference between life and death. So we spend a lot of time talking to customers, uh, we go to a lot of farm shows, we do a lot of demos, and we have seem to have no problem with attracting customers. There's one problem that we don't have in Herdsy is a problem with sales since day one. We've had so many people knock on our doors. Uh, example, just last March, a guy found us on the internet and ordered 5,000 collars uh, so he could monitor his animals in Oregon and prevent wolf attacks, uh, which was a novel one for us. Uh, but it goes to show when sometimes when you build a product, what you think it's going to be used for could be quite different once you let it out of the lab and out of your hands into somebody else's. When you build these tools, you must have people all the time saying, oh, can you please add this feature or can you make it do this for me? So how do you decide which ones are really going to be what people want long term? I think Steve Jobs said it best that sometimes you have, you, people can't tell you what they want. You have to kind of show them what it is that they want to buy. Um, so what we try to do is we look at the things that would be useful to, to us and to other farmers themselves, and then we kind of start we start building them. If you start building things for everyone, number one, you're going to end up with huge development costs and probably a product that's a bit Frankensteinish. Uh, so you've got to be very selective about what you do because as a small company, we're, we're not a huge company. I think we're about four or five people. Uh, we've got to be very selective about the features that we put in because they can be very resource heavy. But we get a lot of interesting um, suggestions from people. I've been asked to build a collar for a rhino. I've been asked to build a collar for a wayward husband, uh, which I'm not doing, by the way, um, simply to, to monitor his, him going to the pub, only because I'd be afraid my wife would use it on me. Um, but we get, a, we get a lot of things, but you have to be very selective. That's why we've stuck to the beef industry, and that's why we're going to build our name in beef. But we have, obviously, ambitions to move it to different species as we go along. And how about you, Michael? How reactive do you become when you're designing these tools, when you get people asking for new features? I have to say I really strongly agree with what Richard just said. You've got to be so careful when you're a small company. You know, a normal model in the software startup is that you produce something that you think is useful and then you wait for people to tell you what they would like to add to it. Uh, And the temptation, of course, is to think that your success will be to continually meet those extra little things that uh, people are calling for uh, and so produce a product. And I I would call that the the evolutionary approach. It's very suitable for a low-cost startup. Um, But later it's really inappropriate because it produces confusing software and it's much better later when you mature your business to take a much more design-led approach. So study your customer and understand what motivates them and try to unify the feedback that you hear from lots of different parties. And as Richard rightly says, you know, often the customer is not very good at vocalising what they really mean or what it is that they actually want. And so you have to be the innovator that, uh, that listens appreciates the needs and creates something through a process of design. Uh, it's a much stronger process, it's really much harder, it's slower, it's more expensive, but what you produce at the end of it is far, far more attractive to buyers. 
And the kind of people you're working with, Michael, they're, they're pretty big. Yeah, NATO, Westminster Abbey, people like the Royal Abbot Hall, I think have got over 65,000 images in their archive. So how do you win their trust so, so they feel really confident with this precious digital content? Yes, uh, it's, it's essential to get that one right. And in fact, there, there are companies which have their entire business model based on our product, storing over a million files, which they, you know, you can imagine the impact if those files aren't accessible. The key thing is to get your IT infrastructure right, but also by that I don't just mean buy lots of hard disks and make lots of backups, but know where your data is and govern that process. It's a fairly sophisticated problem, um, not to be underestimated. But in our case, you know, when, when our average customer is storing terabytes of data, then you add up all the customers and you realise that you've got a vast commitment to data management. Um, obviously, we have to win their trust by illustrating that we know how to do it and that we've got their data in three independent places, for example. Uh, we take backups that uh, aren't in the same place as any of the other backups and all of the things. So, yeah, you have to get very, very good at it, very efficient at it and proving it. And can I ask you both how the pandemic has affected the progress of your business and where it's going next? Did you notice that there was a surge in demand with Third Light and Chorus, Michael, because it's a collaboration tool, so it helped people work together remotely? Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that, and we certainly did see that effect. Um, some deals that would been on the back burner suddenly came rushing forward and were closed, which was great. But equally, you know, we're, we're dealing with so many different sectors that it's inevitable that some people are affected in a way that we can't control. And so we've seen the impact of the pandemic in many different places, some, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Overall, you know, for us as a digital supplier, pretty good, I suppose. But the, you can sense that there's this feeling of renewal, of re-evaluation, re um, planning for the future that people are doing at the moment. And um, there are many new opportunities that I, I feel perhaps weren't going to be there otherwise. So very interesting times to live through. And how about for you, Richard and Herdsey, what was the impact of the pandemic on you? It was quite substantial in some ways. Uh, in South Africa, for example, we weren't allowed to travel there. and We had a contract that was just shut down, mid-contract, um, that we hope to get back to it maybe in a couple of months' time when they open back up. But it also had, when one door closes, another one opens. So we looked at opportunities further afield, and we looked at markets that would try and bounce back quicker. And, of course, we identified immediately North America and, of, of course, Texas being the cow capital of, of, of the United States and potentially the, probably the world. What we did there was uh, I reached out to a lot of people that I would normally not get access to or would have because they'd be sitting at home and some of them were bored. So they didn't have their PAs to uh, gatekeep them or shield them from my calls. So it was absolutely fantastic. I, I got to reach out to people I never imagined I could. Um, some of the top influencers in the United States. Uh, we reached out to the University of Austin. We've signed deals now with Texas A&M. Um, amazing people that we could normally never dream of getting access to. But it was just wonderful because I, I kind of guessed or figured or took a risk that maybe they were sitting at home and they were a bit bored like me and I thought I might just reach out to them and hey presto it really worked so sometimes you've, you've, you've got to see uh, the opportunity you know that, that's there right in front of you. So what's next for you both with you Richard you've got your sights set on Texas is that going to dominate your thoughts for the coming year? 
I think it will. I mean, Texas, if you're number one in, in Texas, you're number one in North America. And if you're number one in North America, you're going to be number one in the world. Um, we've got some really exciting projects. We've got some big projects coming up with Sony uh, with and also with Dell. Uh, with Sony, we're going to do the world's first uh, installation of a technology that's outside of Japan, which is hugely exciting for us. And we're working with big players in Texas A&M. And we're hoping to go to the very large farm shows that have been, and rodeo shows that have been canceled. So I'm really looking forward to that because that really will be our first rodeo. <laughs> and how about you, Michael? So it sounds like you've got a shared client in Sony. What kind of things are on the horizon for you? Yes, we, well, we've been really busy doing innovation at the time that I think it matters the most. Just before growth re-emerges in the economy in a really big way, you've ne you need to have something new and innovative on the table. So for us, that's been Chorus version 3. Just to summarise very briefly what the point of uh, the version 3 release is, that we're, we're trying to combine two separate industries into one product. One industry is the area that we've always been in, which was storing and managing, searching and sharing, collaborating online. And then the other part is th to replace the, the world of, say, OneDrive, Google Drive, Dropbox, cloud storage tools that produce a sort of synchronised file folder thing on your computer. We're trying to merge those two technologies into one. We've cracked it and we're ready to go and bring that to market. So we've got an exciting time ahead with all the innovation done. Now we're at the go-to-market stage with a whole new wave of technology. So it sounds like you've both got exciting things ahead. Richard Hobson from Herdsey and Michael Wells from Third Light, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, sir. Now, in the second half of 2020, the number of new companies being created in the UK soared in comparison to the year before, and it's still going strong. John Bridge OBE, Chief Executive of the Cambridgeshire Chambers of Commerce, has plenty of tips if you're thinking of starting a new business yourself. Well, I think that uh, currently there are businesses uh, setting up across all different sectors. Um, retail have probably has been the most um, because people have found that they've got the time to perhaps be able to trade online. So retail has probably been the foremost. But we need uh, entrepreneurs and innovators to uh, come up with some really brilliant ideas so that we can get going and get our economy back on track as quickly as possible after the implications of uh, the pandemic over the last year or so. I think the key thing is that um, the first thing that businesses need to do is to really identify, know and understand and be able to articulate what their product is. Many people have ideas and they try and go with ideas rather than really sorting out what that product is and what the benefits of it are so that they know and understand the marketplace that they need then to direct it. Many years ago, when I first started, people talked about the marketing aspect being like archery. The first thing you need to do is identify the target. You need to make sure that you equip your arrow with all the information you need and actually know where that target is so you can fire that information and hit the bullseye. Uh, if you don't do that, uh, you might be surprised if you don't get the kind of response you're looking for. That's a really, really good analogy. So you're kind of starting with the goal in mind. That's it. You've got to. And you start with your product and then you uh, start with exactly where you want it to go. 
And I started my own business in 2008. And a lot of people over the years have said, oh, in a recession, that was brave. But it was actually exactly the right time because I was small and flexible. No one had to pay my national insurance or provide a desk or anything like that. So I was able to kind of be quite nimble and fill in a lot of gaps. So are you seeing the same now? So we've got this situation of economic disruption and it's actually quite a good time to start a business. It's uh, always a good time to start a business, I think. <laughs> but more importantly, we find that obviously people have to rethink and look at pivoting in terms of uh, their lives and their business activity. And so we tend to get a larger group of people starting their own businesses at times like this, when the whole marketplace has been disrupted in the way that it has. And I think it's really good because it's the, the good positive thinkers who can see that there are opportunities that they can grasp for themselves rather than just sitting back and perhaps waiting for things to get better and them to be able to return to the way they were before. It's a really good time for that entrepreneurial spirit, isn't it? How can people decide if the business they're starting has really got longevity or if it's something that might be um, particularly effective now? So, for example, you were mentioning businesses going online and anything that involves delivery at the moment is doing really well. But how can people look a bit further ahead and think, well, where will it be in maybe one or two years' time? Well, it's really important that we think that what you need to do is think globally from day one. You need to look at your product in terms of how it can be sold and be a benefit right around the world. Don't restrict yourself just to the UK market. Really look at the benefits that can be derived right across international markets. And the key thing is that um, you need to think about some of the principles of other people and what has made them successful. One of the things I learned from Sir Tim Smith, who uh, for fame is the Eden Project, is that uh, the first thing you need to do is believe in Tinkerbell. Um, well, people laugh at me when I say that, um, but the key thing is that Tinkerbell was uh, a fairy in Peter Pan who actually could make anything happen. And it's the kind of thinking that he's saying you've got to have as a business, that you've got to believe that whatever you're doing is going to succeed. Because if you don't believe it, why would anybody else believe it? And as you grow and you get people working with you, if you don't really believe what you're doing and how it's going to succeed, you won't be able to pass that on and get that message across and really make sure everybody works together collectively to make that happen and make it successful. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? If the founder doesn't have that belief in the product, then how is anybody else around them going to going to feel it too? What kind of support is out there, would you say? So kind of helpful, helpful resources that you might know of or useful sources of information for anyone starting a business? Yes, we have a growth hub in Cambridgeshire run by the Cambridge and Peterborough Combined Authority. And they do a series of startup courses for businesses going through all the different elements that people need to know and understand. And like anything, it's very important not to try and go it alone, not to try and look at the different aspects of it, but to really grasp all the different uh, facets that you need for business. The, the real challenge, actually, that we have, and we have entrepreneurs in Cambridge, but uh, survey after survey has shown that often those businesses have failed, not because they haven't had a good product, that's emanated from a really good idea, but because they haven't had the management skills to develop that business and make sure they put it on the right footings and parameters that you need to have in place in order to be able to grow and upskill 
and uh, make sure that the business can develop in the way that it needs to to provide economic success for you and for uh, the community. And would you say that people have to get formal training or things like networking or courses that maybe are run by the Chambers of Commerce? Is is that quite a good place to start as well? If perhaps, yeah, you don't have an MBA or (laughs) any official background in business and you just started from scratch? Well, the one thing I would say is I also think that uh, all businesses should join the Chamber of Commerce, um, which provides great opportunities for all the key things that you need, particularly the connectivity between people, but also about the different aspects of business and the different uh, things that you need to be involved in and understand in order to succeed. But ultimately, it's really good to be able to connect with people, like-minded people, and be able to discuss and chat with them to see how they are dealing with things, how they've coped with challenges. Um, And it's great to be able to actually have a really good peer network um, that can work with you and help you externally, as well as all the people that work internally with you to make you successful. I mean, the one thing I've always learned that uh, as you develop a business, the key thing is, is to get people that are better than you. Because if you get people that can perform better than you, it will make you successful and you shouldn't be frightened of that aspect. That's a really good tip, John. Thank you very much. Yes, been really good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. And in the final episode of the series, next time, we'll be exploring creative ways of learning with Raspberry Pi and Blue Tick. Plus tips from our branding expert on spreading your message effectively. The Business of Cambridge was presented by Sukio and brought to you in association with Third Light, transforming how marketers collaborate and manage their digital media. It's a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio and you can find previous episodes on our website or wherever you get your podcasts.